Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 12. Abram's response to Revelation. Genesis chapter 12. This morning we'll cover verses 4 through 9. Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 9 provides a model of faithful obedience. Abram left the security and the comfort of family and country and obeyed the word of the Lord. But there's more to this passage than just that. Abram not only obeyed, but he obeyed with the right attitude, as we're going to see today. And once he arrives in the land, he publicly worships the one who had called him to that place. The obedience of the committed disciple of Jesus Christ will not only be immediate and it will be complete, but it will also be done with the right attitude. Abram understood what so few people understand today, and that is it's not all about him. It was not all about Abram. It's all about God. And if you want to know what really made Abram great, that's where it starts. It wasn't about him. In spite of the fact that he had this incredible covenant that the Messiah is going to come through his line, that he'll be a blessing to all the nations, it's not about Abram. It's about the God who gave him that blessing. That's what made Abram great. That's the model that we should see in, these, in this particular narrative. And, and this narrative develops really along two lines. The first we studied last week, and that was the word of the Lord, what the, what the Lord actually said. And the second is Abram's response to it. And that's our subject today, how Abram responded to the word of the Lord. Remember in verses 1 through 3, this, this critical passage, this passage that many Old Testament scholars believe is the central passage in the book of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Although not all agree, there is some discussion about it. The call that I just read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this call to Abram was most likely given when he was living in Haran. What is recorded here in these three verses is not the Abrahamic covenant per se. It's not the Abrahamic covenant in its final form, although the blessings that are delineated here will be ensured by the covenant. At this point, at this point in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the promises that were given to Abraham were conditioned upon his faith. But the final form, and this is critical, the final form of the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. And I'm going to observe an elaboration upon that for later chapters. But just one quick note, the term covenant, as it is related to Abraham, doesn't occur until the affirmation of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15. But more on that when we get to that particular chapter. There's a very specific structure that we studied last week to verses 1 through 3. Let me remind you of it before we go to verses 4 through 9. There's a very specific structure, grammatical structure, and a literary structure in verses 1 through 3. There's an initial command, also called an imperative, that's followed by three promises. And then those promises lead to and enable 
Abram to fulfill the second command, which is followed by three more promises. So the structure is fairly simple. A command and three promises, and then a command and three promises. But the command and the first three promises enable Abram to fulfill the command, the second command, and then the final three promises. The first imperative, or the first command, is go. It's pretty simple. Go forth from your country. Go. The first three promises go like this. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great. The first command and the first three promises. The second imperative is a little more difficult to see in this English translation. My Bible has it translated at the end of verse 2. You might want to check your Bible. And so you shall be a blessing. And that's a little bit ambiguous. But in the Hebrew text, this is actually a command. The command is to be a blessing. And then the second three promises, I will bless those blessing you. I will curse the one cursing you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So did you see it? A command and three promises. A second command that is enabled by the the first section, and then three more promises. Again, literally, it is be a blessing. Most of your Bibles, I trust most of your Bibles, provide some sort of marginal note there, some sort of little asterisk or perhaps a footnote, marginal note, that lets you know that this is actually... A command, and there's a great deal of discussion in Hebrew scholarship about the significance of this command with regard to its structure. But the consensus in Hebrew scholarship is that the way that this is crafted, this imperative or this command, expresses the ideas of certainty and divine intention or purpose. Certainty or divine intention. Or purpose, And that's why most all of your translations will, will understand that and render it something like, and so you will be a blessing. But it's actually a command for Abram to be a blessing. And we're gonna, the reason I stress that is we're going to see him being a blessing today. He's going to fulfill it in the next, in verses 4 through 9. So that's why I stress this today. The Lord sends blessing to Abram so that Abram would in turn be a blessing. Abram would be responsible for being a conduit of God's blessing to mankind. I I like that phrase, conduit of blessing, because we're commanded to be a blessing to other people as well. We're commanded to be a conduit of blessing to other people. There are are many, many people out there that, that need our help, and it may not necessarily be financial. That's the first thing that we think of when we think of helping somebody else out. But we can be a conduit of God's, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's chesed, to use the Old Testament term, God's loving kindness. We have the opportunity almost each and every day to be a conduit of that blessing to someone else. Now, it, it may be buying someone else lunch that, that is hungry, but it also may be writing an encouraging note to someone or just patting them on the back or picking up the phone and saying, hey, how are you doing today? I understand you had a rough night last night. That's being a conduit of God's blessing to another individual. And that's what Abram will be. So today, in in verses 4 through 9, we will observe Abram begin to fulfill this command to be a blessing. First, as he worships at Shechem, and then as he follows up that worship at a little place or a little gathering between Bethel and Ai. Now read along with me verses 4 through 9, our passage for today. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and his Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons 
which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus, they came to the land of Canaan. Then in verse 6, And Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Moray. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar. He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then verse 9 summarizes and tells us where he's going next. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Notice immediately Abram's complete and total obedience, without question. Look at verse 1 again. The text tells us that God said to Abram, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. You see what verse 4 says? So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. No arguments, no, no call for clarification, no whining about it, um, no, no running and telling everybody how you're having to suffer for Jesus. He just did it. And as we studied last week, this is a big step. Ur the Chaldees was no remote outpost in the desert somewhere. This was a thriving city, one of, one of the most civilized cities of the ancient world. They had two-story houses there. Archaeologists tell us they had indoor plumbing. This is 2,000 years before the Romans. This is 2,000 years before Christ. That's 4,000 years ago, and we think that we're so smart. <laughs> well, we are intelligent, I think, in, in many ways. And at least we're in, we have a vast amount of information. But the people back then, were not their IQs were not necessarily lower than ours. They did a lot with what they have. And Abram came from a very civilized place. And God says, get up and go to a country that I'm going to show you. He had no pictures of this country. He couldn't go to the Internet and look some things up and see what it was going to be like. He probably had never even heard of anybody from that location. But yet his obedience is immediate. There's no question. And we're going to see this happen again in chapter 22. There's two great acts of faith in Abram's life. This one and what happens in chapter 22 when he's told to sacrifice Isaac. Now, there are many intermediate acts of faith along the way, but there are two incredible acts of faith that make Abram the servant of the Lord that he was. And all along, the entirety of the time, Abram gets it. He understands that it's not about him. If there was ever anybody that could have been arrogant about his position on this planet, it was Father Abraham. Because he, he was picked out of everybody. First, we have the, 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 the promise of a Savior. In Genesis chapter 3.15, and to summarize, it basically goes like this. God tells the serpent, he said, the, the seed of the woman is going to ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. It doesn't sound much like John 3.16, but it's the John 3.16 of Genesis. The seed of the woman would conquer the seed of the serpent. And really, all that tells us in terms of narrowing it down, is going to be one of the male offspring of Eve that will end up conquering the seed of the serpent. Eve thought it was Cain. And with legitimate reason. That was her first offspring. She thought it might be, but we find out right away that Cain is certainly not good. In fact, he's the polar opposite. From the time of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel all the way down through the centuries, they were looking for this seed of the woman. And now we find out that it's going to come through the line of Abraham. It's not going to be Abraham. Abraham is not the promised seed of the woman. And, of course, we know the promised seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. Now, they don't know it at this point. But Abraham realizes this incredible blessing 
that the seed of the woman, the, the one who's going to save all mankind from their sins, is going to come through him. What a great blessing that is. But he never became arrogant about it. That's one of the things that makes Abram the, the great man that he was. There are no qualifiers. There are no objections. There's no complaining. There's no seeking clarification from this command. He just does it. Now, the Lord said to Abram, and then in verse 4, so Abram went forth, as the Lord had said to him. There, there are really three issues that we need to at least touch upon with regard to Abram's obedience here, and I'll cover those in these three aspects. First, the text records that Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Remember, in our study last time, we mentioned that, that some liberal Old Testament scholars believe that Abram left Ur of the Chaldees because of a socio-political, socio-economic situation that had developed there with, with some people that had come in and were about to conquer that area, so Abram left out of necessity. And that's not the case. We see here that Abram's departure from Ur and then Haran was not a natural migration. Peoples did that in the ancient world. Peoples did that actually even, even in our day today. There may not be a job in Houston, so you go to Michigan. There's not a job in Michigan, you come back to Houston. There's not one in Houston, so you go to California. You see the point. People migrate where the food is, where the work is. Well, they certainly did that in ancient times as well. But this is not a natural migration. This is obedience on Abram's part. He, he left because he was compelled to leave by God, not because of socio-political or socio-economic conditions. It's an act of obedience. The second thing I want to, to bring out about this particular act of obedience is that the text stresses a little bit later Abram's age when he left Ur. Look at, look at verse 4 again. So Abram went forth as, he had, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. I don't care how good a shape you're in when you're 75 years old. It's, it's a pretty long walk. It's about 500 miles down to where they first stop in Shechem. It's quite, a, it's quite an effort. He's not a young pup at this point. So the text stresses Abram's age for a reason. Both Abram and Sarai, as she's known now, are older when this journey begins. And you'll recall in chapter 11 that the text gave us this little hint of something that was to come when the text told us that and Sarai was barren. Interesting that, that Moses, on writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just kind of threw that in at that time. Well, you should know by now there are no throw-in lines in the Scriptures. There's a reason why that was put there. It heightens the tension for what's going to come next because the Lord tells him in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that he's going to make a great nation from him. So on the one hand, we have the fact that his wife is, excuse me, she's a little older, and she's also barren at the time. And now we have this promise. This tension is developing in the text. How's this going to happen? At least if we're reading through it the first time, that's what we would ask ourselves. How is this going to come to pass? They're both older, yet she's barren. And of course, that's one of the major themes in the Abrahamic narratives, exactly how that does come to pass with this incredible, this incredible uh, blessing from God. And the third thing that I want to note about Abram's obedience is this. When I read the scripture, you probably caught it. We saw that when Abram left Haran, Abram took his possessions with him, and then the text tells us, and the persons or the souls that they had acquired in Haran. 
Our first inclination is to understand this as the acquisition of slaves, and that there was slavery in the ancient world, and and it's, it's, uh, it's a mistake sometimes when we take our idea of slavery and then superimpose that on the ancient text. Things were a bit different at that time. But even though that's our first inclination to, to take it that way and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, the term that is used here is the Hebrew term nephesh. And nephesh, which is translated souls, was not typically the way that they would have referred to a slave at that time. So who were these people that they had acquired? Well, they weren't offspring because Sarai is barren. So, so if they're not slaves and they're not offspring, who are these people that they had acquired? Who are these souls that they had acquired? Most likely, these were individuals who Abram had proselytized when he was in Haran. These are the souls. These are souls that have been saved. Most likely, this is what is being referenced here. And if this is the case, and I can't prove that, but that's the most likely answer exegetically. If this is the case, it means that Abram had already been sharing his faith when he's in Haran. He doesn't wait until he gets to the promised land to begin being a blessing to other people. Which also tells me that whatever form the original call came in Ur of the Chaldees, it was something similar to what we see in verses 1 through 12. Abram got it. He got it in so many ways. And sometimes I, I visit with folks and, and they have a great desire to go out onto the mission field. I say, well, well why, why do you want to go on the mission field? Because it's not a vacation. Mission work is not a vacation. At least not in any of the places I've been, it's never been a vacation. And so you say, well, well, what is your purpose in wanting to go? I think that's a legitimate question. And, and inevitably, people will say, well, I, I want to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I ask, and I'm not trying to be unkind or unpleasant by asking it, but I, I really, we really need to know, and that is, do you share your faith here? Do, do you share your faith now? Because, you see, the Christian way of life is not being totally silent about Jesus here amongst your friends and your family and your peers. And then going to some distant country where you know you're only going to be there for a short time. Then you're going to hightail it out of there as soon as you can. And then tell them all about Jesus, how Jesus loves you. No, Abram didn't do that. He started ministering right where he was to the people that were right in front of him at the time. Abram is a model for us, a model of faithful obedience in so many different ways. So that's the third thing. The first thing was that the text records that Abram had departed as the Lord had spoken to him. It was not a natural migration. The second important thing about this, about this obedience of Abram is that Abram and Sarai were both old, or older, excuse me, older when this particular thing happens. And I almost got stuff thrown at me, didn't I? <laughs> I, and, I, and I made a point when I, was, when I was going over this not to say that. <laughs> they were older. And it adds tension to the text. Because you're wondering how in the world is this promise going to be fulfilled. And then finally, we note that Abram had already been sharing his faith when he was in Haran. Now look at verse 6. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. 
So the first major stop after Abram leaves Haran, and he goes north for a bit, and he comes down over that fertile crescent, about 500 miles, give or take, about 500 miles to this place known as Shechem. And it's interesting to me, I, I hope you picked it out. If you're doing careful Bible study, you may wonder, why in the world is this particular tree mentioned? You know, it, it doesn't seem like that you would spill a lot of ink about a tree being here, but the, the text mentions the Oak of Mora. Some translations translate this word that I've translated oak, terebinth, which covers actually a wide variety of trees, from pepper trees to trees that bear pistachios. So it's a fairly general term. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about exactly what kind of tree this was, but but the text implies to us this is a fairly big tree and it's a fairly old tree. And if you've been to Israel, particularly this part of Israel near Shechem, you know that the shade would be highly valued if you're in that particular area. And so apparently it's a, it's a tree that has a canopy that goes out and people meet underneath this tree. We can surmise that it's some form of important spot, not only in Abram's day, but it may very well have been an important spot in Moses' day <coughs> as he's writing this text. Moray means in Hebrew, teacher. So this may very well have been the location of an ancient shrine where instruction took place. If this is so, and it probably is, then Abraham himself, from the get-go, as soon as he arrives in the land, finds himself right in the middle of pagan worship. But he doesn't back down. And this makes sense, considering his charge to be a blessing. He's not shying away from it. And God's not going to let him shy away from it. God is putting him right in the middle of the fight, right in the middle of the battle. One of the best lines from Lewis Bray Chaffer's He That Is Spiritual, it goes something like this. He said, God blesses those who are walking by means of the Holy Spirit with a front row seat in the spiritual battle, where, where the temperature is the hottest. And that's where Abram is right now. He's, in the, he's got a front row seat to the spiritual battle. So right away, we see him in the middle of the fight. The final phrase in verse 6, now the Canaanite was then in the land. That may mean nothing to us as well because we're very familiar with the Canaanites. Having studied a lot of the Old Testament, I'm sure that you have. You're familiar with that, with that particular term. But that too adds a bit of tension to the text. So we've already had two, two tension bits to this text so far. First, Sarai is barren. And they're old when they leave, but they have this promise to make them a great nation. But now we have another, just a little bit of tension that's added to the text. If we think back to Genesis chapter 9, you will call at that time, we studied this passage that was a bit curious at first, but I hope once we studied it, it, it became more clear to us, where Noah has something happened to him. The text is not totally clear, uh, by his son Ham. But when the time for the cursing comes, Noah doesn't curse Ham, he curses Canaan. And so that, I believe, is the reason for this mention here. Now, the Canaanite was in the land because the last time that we've heard anything about the Canaanite, uh, it's, a, it's a very negative thing that we've heard. God is going to curse him. So this particular aspect of this passage, it, again, it's not a throwaway line. Now, the Canaanite was then in the land. This strikes an ominous tone. This strikes a, th a threatening tone for anybody that has... Read the first 11 chapters. You'll recall in your previous studies, and if you haven't, you'll see in this study 
that throughout the book of Genesis, the Canaanites are the antagonists. They're, can I say, they're the bad guys in this particular text. And verses 7 through 9, we're going to see Abram's great obedience, Abram's great faithfulness. He's already been faithful to the first command to go forth. We're going to see him being faithful to that second command to be a blessing. We've had a hint of it already with the persons that they acquired in Canaan, the souls that they acquired in Canaan. So we, we can surmise that he was already giving the gospel. He was, can I, can I use some Hallmark card theology? He, he was growing where he was planted. You see? That was the opportunity that was placed in front of him. So many times we strive for other opportunities. We so wish that God would let us do what that person's doing, or he would open up the opportunity to do another thing that someone else has in front of them. Don't strive for that. Grow where you're planted. If the Lord puts you in a particular place, be a blessing in that place. And we, we don't always need to be having angst fill our souls about being somewhere else. Grow where you're planted. And Abram certainly is doing that. So we see him in initial obedience and going forth geographically. Now we see him being a blessing, and we're really going to see it in this particular passage. In verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Now the Lord here that appeared... It's generally agreed by all Old Testament scholars and theologians alike that this is the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate state. Jesus himself told us that no one has seen the Father at any time. So these appearances of the Lord, of Yahweh in the Old Testament, are understood to be pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ himself. And it's going to happen more than once in the book of Genesis. So the Lord here is the second person of the Trinity. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there. So in verse 7, the Lord appears to Abram and rewards his faith by confirming the promise of land and offspring. In response to the Lord's revelation, to his confirmation of this promise, Abram builds an altar. And worships God. Oh, we've, we've said it before, but it bears repeating. Worship is the response to revelation. Oh, we're so blessed in our culture. We have the Bible, and I don't know how many different, really nice translations, some being better than others in my view, but really nice translations, particularly in comparison to other places. In August of 2000, I was preaching at a pastor's conference in Kazakhstan. And we came to a particular, a particular rendering. And I was going through Margaret, who's a Russian translator, who translates into Russian. Then Margaret was translating into Russian for part of the group. And then there was a Kazakh translator that was translating it into Kazakh. So it was a three-step process. It was quite cumbersome, actually, at times. But, but at one point, we just we got to a place where there's this chaos broke out between, between the two translators. And so we took a break, and I, I huddled them up together, and I said, What's, uh, what, seems to be the, what seems to be the problem here? And, and both of them said, what you said is not what's in the Kazakh Bible at all. I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. I'm glad that we stopped, because it was a major point. It wasn't a minor thing. And I forgot exactly where we were in the in the lecture series, but I, I had said, I was quoting Malachi, and I said, God hates divorce. And what it says in the Kazakh, and it says that in the Russian Bible, 
But in the Cossack Bible, it says if a man hates his wife, he should divorce her. A, a bit, now don't be looking around. It's a, a, bit, a bit different concept, is it not? That's not the right rendering, by the way. I know how they got that, but it's not the right rendering. And, and when we came back, George Meisinger, who's the president of Chafer Seminary, went, went straight to Wycliffe, which is right down the street from Chafer, and told him about this. And he said, we've got, and not just there, but we have several problems with the Kazakh Bible. We need Wycliffe to start working on a Kazakh translation. And Wycliffe said, we can't. There's already a Kazakh Bible. You know, in, in our rendering of things right now, we can only begin new work of, of places where they don't have a Bible at all. You know, I only tell you that story to stress this point. We have incredible amount of biblical revelation, revelation about God in our hands, on our coffee tables, on our shelves. I got a whole bunch of different Bibles. I probably have a dozen Bibles just in my office, all different translations, a couple different verbs, a couple different renderings of the same translation, just different, bound differently. We have an incredible amount of revelation. And you happen to attend a church that has as one of its priorities to teach the Word of God. Now, not every church is that way, and it's not my place today to, to raise up one or put another one down, but that's, that's my priority because I'm convicted of that, the necessity of it, the priority of presenting the Word of God to you. So you have had an incredible amount of biblical revelation. And if you don't think so, just get outside your circle sometime and just talk to other people. Now, this is not said to make you arrogant or proud in any way. If it does, then my purpose has not been achieved this morning. What I want you to see is that you've had an incredible amount of revelation about God. And I'm not talking about just in nature. I'm talking about special revelation from God himself. So of all people, of all people, those who have had an incredible amount of biblical revelation, and it's not just this church, I'm not implying that, but I'm saying in our culture, we've had an incredible amount in our culture. We of all people should have the most intense worship, the most enthusiastic worship of anybody on the planet because we've had God revealed to us. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. But that says more about us as individuals than it does about God's revelation. I've seen, I've seen some people that have a thimble full of biblical revelation that's been given to them. And their spiritual lives are, are, are just on fire because they're doing all they can with that thimble full. You know what I want from all of us, including myself, starting with myself? I want to do more with what I have right now. Now, this doesn't mean, as someone told me one time, I've already learned enough of the Word of God. I don't need it anymore. I just need to start applying it. Well, no, you didn't get, you didn't get it either. <laughs> We, we never learn enough. We're going, to be, we're going to be learning to the day that we die. But we need to apply what we learn. And wasn't that James's point when we studied his epistle right before this book of Genesis? Well, Abram gets it. So he builds an altar. Now, the, the idea of an altar is, is central to Old Testament worship, at least central to Old Testament worship before the time of the tabernacle and the temple. Altars are found all over the ancient Near East, but particularly in in the area of Israel, in Megiddo, what, uh, right next to the plain of Armageddon, this city that is so old and ancient, Canaanite, not Israeli, but, but Canaanite temples and altars have been uh, excavated that date to many centuries before Abraham arrives, before Abram arrives. Now, generally speaking, the altars of that time were about four feet tall and about four feet wide. And the purpose of building an altar, what, what they would do is that they would gather stones, not so much wood, because wood is at a premium in that part of the world. 
but they would gather stones. And the, the, generally the altars were rectangular, although there's one, there's one that's absolutely huge, 26 feet in diameter and almost five feet high. If, if you happen to be at church tonight, I'll show you a picture of that one. That's huge, and that's been found at Megiddo. But generally speaking, they're about four feet wide, four feet tall, rectangular. Sometimes they would have steps where the worshiper could, could climb up on the steps. And then animals would be sacrificed to the gods by the Canaanites on top of this altar. That was the purpose of an altar. And so Abram builds one of these altars first at Shechem. Now remember, this is a place of Canaanite worship. And now you've got this upstart, I was going to say young upstart, but this mature upstart, 75 years old, has come in and he builds an altar there to worship God right in the middle of paganism. I think that's interesting. He, he doesn't go out into the boonies somewhere and say, hey, let's just have, a, let's have our private worship service here. We don't want to offend the Canaanites. After all, they're the ones that have been cursed. They might just take their, their venom out upon us. No, he does it right next to them. Are you beginning to see why Abram is, is considered to be a man of faith? Now, you can do that in an ugly way, and you can do it in a courageous way. And I've seen people do it in an unkind way, and, and, and actually a fair, fairly unpleasant and unbeautiful way sometimes. We're supposed to speak the truth in love, but I have every reason to believe that that's exactly what Abram is doing there. So the first thing we see is he does this in Shechem, but he doesn't stay in Shechem. The Lord has appeared to him there. The Lord has reiterated the, the covenant to him there, the land and seed aspects of the covenant. And he worships there as a response to Revelation. Abram worships as a response to Revelation. And his worship is courageous. And his worship is intense. But he doesn't stay there. He moves on. We don't know how long he stayed, but he doesn't settle there. This is not the same terminology that we had when he, uh, when he went to Haran. He moves on. Now remember, he's already come about 500 miles. Now the next trek is not very far. It's only about 20 miles down the road to the next place that he goes in. He's coming south toward Jerusalem. So if you understand your, your geography of, of ancient Israel, he's come from the north, and he's stopped at Shechem. Now he's going to move down toward Jerusalem to, to a, a location that's between two villages, Bethel and Ai. Now Bethel wasn't called Bethel at the time. Bethel means house of God. But Bethel was called Luz, L-U-Z, at the time. But since the text is writing to people that do know the name Bethel, that's, that's why it's recorded this way. So he travels down just north of what would later be called Jerusalem to worship a second time. And look at what the text says here. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain east of Bethel, so he's coming to the Judean hill country, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. <coughs> and called upon the name of the Lord. At, at first glance, we might be tempted to take this, that Abraham prayed for help to God. Because if someone's calling upon the name of the Lord, in our way of thinking, that's what we most likely would understand them to be doing. To be down on their knees and say, Lord, I, I need your help. Is this where you want me to be? And certainly... That's a possibility. Some people would say if they're calling upon the name of the Lord, it means that we're, we're raising our hands up to receive blessing, as some do in their worship services, even 
today, and they're, they're praying and they're praising God. Some people understand that as, as calling upon the name of the Lord. But it's most likely not that at all. Or at least it's that plus something more significant. Martin Luther rightly translated this phrase, pradigam, which is translated preached. That's from the German, the German Bible. And I think Martin Luther, this is one place where this reformer had it right. Abraham built this altar and he preached Yahweh to anyone who would listen. He proclaimed the Lord. He proclaimed what he knew about the Lord, which was something about the Lord's character and his faithfulness. He had brought him that far. This is what it means, and we ought not to miss the significance of that little phrase. It's not the only time that it's going to come up in Genesis, but it's a very significant thing. Abram made a public proclamation of his faith in this pagan land and preached, proclaimed Yahweh. Don't miss this. This is important as we finish up our time together this morning. The Lord promised to make Abram's name great. And how does Abram respond? He responds by proclaiming the greatness of the name of the Lord. You see, God promised to make Abram's name great. But Abram gets it. He doesn't say, oh, okay, everybody stand back and say, how wonderful you are, Abram. Boy, that was great, Abram. Man, you are a man of faith. No, he responds immediately by turning his attention back to Yahweh and proclaiming the greatness of Yahweh. And that's a pattern for all of us, not just those, not just those who preach publicly. Our attention should be focused on the one who sought us and saved us and keeps us by his grace moment by moment. Our attention should never be focused upon one of the servants of the Lord. Hence our scripture reading from this morning. If you want to be first, get in the back of the line. You, you don't have to try to self-promote, and there's way too much self-promotion going on in Christianity today. Way too much. Look at me. And, and way, way too many churches that are built upon personalities. Now, I don't have a problem with a church being built upon a personality, provided the personality is Jesus Christ. But when we build upon the personality of a man, what we have is someone who accepts the Lord's blessing and then stops right there. And that's not the way it should be. Listen, I, I'm, I just like the rest of you. I, I'm like every single one of you here, I like to be encouraged sometimes. So, so you don't have to stop coming up afterwards now and then when something has blessed you. Don't do it just because you think you have to. But, but when something truly blesses you, sometimes people come saying, you know, that, that really helped me out today. I appreciate it. Or you'll get a, a text or an email on Monday or Tuesday and say, thank you so much. That, that was really helpful. But you know what I desire as a pastor and anybody in here who's, who's in, in public ministry desires as well? That when you hear a sermon or you hear an exposition from the Word of God, you know what we deeply desire if we're doing the right thing? I, I deeply desire for you to walk out of here and say, isn't God magnificent? Isn't Jesus Christ wonderful? Now, if you want to say that was a great sermon, that's fine too, but the next thing out of your mouth should be, isn't God wonderful? Do you, did you see what he did for Abram? And, and did you see the way that Abram worshipped God? And, and the idea would not be, say, isn't Abram great? 
although he was a great man of faith, the bottom line is Abram was great because he shifted the attention back to where it needs to be. And moment by moment, every single second that we're alive on this earth, our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ and on him alone. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm designing a bridge. Am I supposed to be thinking about God? You're supposed to be doing it as unto the Lord. God gave you the ability, the architectural, the engineering ability to do it. Do it as good as you can as unto the Lord for him. When you raise your children, raise them as unto the Lord, thinking about him. Some people made fun of it, but I kind of like the bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Because it, it, it provides us a, a focus, a reminder that he is the one that counts. It's all about him. As, as egocentric as all of us are, I, I'd love to say it's all about you and it's all about me, but it's not. And I will die before I lead a church where it's all about you. I'm, I'm here for you. I really am. You are important to me. Every single one of you is important to me. And I mean that with all my heart, with all, the, with all the love of Jesus Christ. You are important to me. But we do this for Jesus Christ. He is the most significant person. He's top shelf. Paul says in Colossians, he has preeminence over everything else. And as long as he's on the top shelf, then every other shelf is fine. Sometimes I hear people say, well, my wife is the highest priority of my life. Well, no offense, and I mean none by it at all. But Jesus Christ is the highest priority of my wife, and my wife would want it no other way. And your spouse, wouldn't, if they're walking with the Lord, wouldn't want it any other way either. Because if, if Jesus Christ is my number one priority in life, then my relationship with Cindy is going to be the way it should be. But if things get turned around and I put her on the top shelf, or, my, or David, or Marsha, or Bruce, or, or anybody else in, that, that's close to me, then they become an idol. And Abram didn't do that. He worships in a foreign land, in a land that's thoroughly pagan. Those who attempt to achieve greatness through self-glorification and self-promotion will achieve infamy rather than fame, rather than true fame. Those who, in humility, recognize the greatness of God rather than their own significance, will in the end receive the recognition from the only one that really, truly matters. David, King David in the Old Testament, is one of the most well-known figures in Hebrew Bible. But he, like Abram, was not into self-promotion. He begins his 34th Psalm this way. I will bless the Lord at all times. He shall, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Father, we pray that you would dismiss us from this place with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.